namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Continuing this uh, chapter from Don't Take Your Life Personally by Ajahn Sumato. And this chapter is called Beginning to Sense the Unborn. This was from a talk uh, given, uh, as all these uh, were, at the uh, Leicester Summer School. And this one was given on the 31st of July, 2001. At this moment, therefore, we're not interested in analyzing, comparing, or making anything out of conditions. We're letting them be what they are. We're opening to space and seeing that it contains us all. Space isn't just here or there, it's everywhere. It permeates everything. So by doing this, we might begin to get a little more aware, a little more insight into the unborn, which is here and now, but which we don't notice. Space is an obvious one, of course. We can visually contemplate it. And by just taking space, quote-unquote, as a word that points to the reality that exists here, rather than as something to grasp, means that we're not taking a particular interest in conditions. I don't have to ask you all to leave and remove the furniture, or feel that the room is in, uh, is in the way, or wish for the building to be torn down. It isn't a matter of destroying or annihilating anything. It's rather that awareness begins to expand and give this sense of infinity, which we might not yet have become aware of. Uh, one of the uh, things to uh, reflect upon with respect to using space as a, an analogy for this uh, inner quality of the unborn, the un unoriginated, uncreated, uh, and those kind of, of terms, is that uh, space is both the best example and the worst example, because space is not conscious. Space is not aware, and so that um, whereas on an inner level, on, in terms of the, um, the, sub, the so inner experience, the subjective experience, that quality of, of spaciousness is something that is, um, there's a, a, an awareness that is, the, in a sense, the very fabric of that spaciousness. So space in the material realm is a, is a very good example, as Lumpur uh, Sumato is expounding on here, but it's also good to bear in mind, like, well, Yes, but. <laughs> so like, uh, uh, as it says, every analogy, every kind of simile can only be partially true. So we like, so the other day I was saying like the, the sun doesn't rise uh, in the east. It only appears to because of the turning of the earth. The sun doesn't set in the west. It just, it just seems to because of the turning of the earth. And you can say the sun doesn't go anywhere. But of course it does. The sun is moving along with the whole of the the, uh, the galaxy, the Milky Way, is spinning around, and then the Milky Way is hurtling through space at several millions of miles per second and so on. So that the sun, of course, is moving, <laughs> but in terms of the analogy of saying that the, uh, the, the, the sun doesn't rise, it's the Earth that's turning, then it's, it's, sort of, it's uh, good, it's true enough, it's, it's a reasonable enough uh, approximation. So when we're talking about space, 
And space as an analogy or a way of comparing um, space to the unborn, the unconditioned, the unformed, and so on, then, like every analogy, it, it can only be partially true, partially accurate. Before I ever meditated, I remember reading enigmatic statements like, eternity is now, and thinking, but where is now? Everything in my mind that was associated with now was time-bound, like my personality, for example. The sense of myself as a person is a condition, and the body is also a time-bound condition. It's like this building. I can find out how old this building is, follow its history, try to understand this whole place in terms of when things were built, when the botanical gardens first appeared, how they were developed, and so forth. I can take an interest in that side of things, but that's taking an interest in time-bound conditions. The flora and fauna in these gardens are certainly interesting and fascinating in themselves, but if I remain on that level, something in me will be bound to those conditions and will not see through them or beyond. By exploring conditioned phenomena in terms of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and non-self, anicca, dukkha, anatta, and by doing that in the right way, rather than just believing in the ideas of them, projecting them onto experience, I start noticing the assumption I make that people are the perceptions I have of them in my mind. Okay, I'll read that again. Uh, <coughs> I start noticing the assumption I make that people are the perceptions I have of them in my mind. On a meditation retreat in Amravati many years ago, I asked everybody, where is your mother right now? People responded with comments like, oh, she's in Norfolk, or wherever. But I was trying to get them to question the perception, my mother, quote, unquote. And to recognize that actually the perception, mother, is always in your mind. You have a memory, you have a perception, you might even have an image of your mother in your mind. But those things are here and now. You have created them. They are memories that come and go according to conditions. But is that perception really your mother? Or is it just what it is? A perception, a memory, a thought, an image. And when you let go of that perception, where is your mother? For me right now, I don't know the answer to that. The perception of my mother is that she's dead, and the priest said she's in heaven. But I don't know. I do, know her, I do however, know that I don't know. And I know that I don't need to know. I no longer need to hold on to some view about my mother being up in heaven with the Lord as a way of making myself feel all right in the present moment. It isn't that I don't care, but I'm willing to admit the limitations that I'm under as a human being and this conscious experience of being a human entity. So this is an extremely important point because we tend to populate our, our world and our experience with... Um, with things that we assume are, are out there. And uh, this little exercise of saying, where's your mother? Um, and then uh, uh, you know, the, the mind of, it goes to the obvious geographical location, or my mother's passed away, or my mother lives in London or Norfolk, or in, uh, <coughs> in Colombo, or in Bangkok, or in uh, Milan, or wherever. And uh, that the point that he's making is that the thought, my mother, is a thought that arises in the mind. And that with this, uh, this quality of, say, letting go of the time-bound conditions, letting go of the, uh, the way the mind creates the world, it's bringing it home. 
uh, and uh, uh, is say uh, referring to that perspective that the Buddha suggests, which is that the world is the world of our experience. The only world we can meaningfully talk about is the world of what we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. That uh, that is the world. And one of the teachings I, I quote very often um, from the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, and the Buddha says, you know, "What is the world? The, uh, that whereby one is a perceiver of the world." and a conceiver of the world, that is the world in this teaching. And what is it whereby one is a perceiver and a conceiver of the world? The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. That is the means whereby one is a perceiver and a conceiver of the world. So the world, quote-unquote, is the world of our own experience. It's not saying that there isn't some kind of basis for it, that there's not the, uh, the four elements moving around. It's not saying that the... Um, the whole thing is a, an illusion or a dream. It's just saying that the only, uh, the, the only world you can know, any of us can know, is the world of our experience. Now, if you're a physicist and you say, ah, oh, yeah, but I can watch the neutrinos coming blasting out of space and zipping all the way through the Earth, that's still your experience of looking at a machine counting the neutrinos zipping through the Earth. <laughs> it's still a perception that comes in your mind and says, oh, look, there's... 60 billion neutrinos passing through every square centimeter of the Earth every second. Look at that. It's just a number on a, on a screen that the person is perceiving. It's still a constraint. Um, and so that the, uh, that's a, a, a very short teaching there in the Pali Canon, but an extremely significant one because it's, it's pointing to this that the, the world that we live in is the world of our own creation, the world of our own they, uh, our own perceptions, the language we speak, how old we are, our state of health, the education that we had, the parents that we had, the um, the state of the body here and now. You know, if you're uh, if you're in, in a lot of pain uh, and that uh, you can't really hear the words I'm saying because you're feeling, <sighs> you know, <clears throat> so that uh, you know, one of the monks last night was very ill and had a very very intense pain. And that um, if you sort of curled up in a heap and you say to him, now, what's your, what's your understanding of a Nietzsche Dukkha Anatta? <laughs> you know, like the mind is not going to, to conceptual concept, uh, conceptual understanding. It's like this is intense pain. And so his whole, the whole universe shrinks to that one thing. And uh, yeah, every one of us has had that kind of experience. Something that you're excited by, something that you're frightened of, something that you're irritated by. All the rest of the world falls away while that the attention goes to that one thing. And it can be uh, a noisy neighbor. It can be a, a speck of dust in your eye. That literally, like, ah, oh, what's my eye? Ah. The whole world shrinks just to that one spot where there's this intense feeling of, oh, that thing in my eye. Your mother and father have disappeared. Amravati's gone. Your nationality and your language, everything has vanished. Whether you're a woman or a man or how old you are, it's all gone. It's like, ow, my eye. Right? It's just, it falls away, and then you get it out of your eye, and then you come back to being a... Oh, then you've got your name and your story and your nationality, and all come... Boop, kind of reconfigures. But that's... So this is what this is pointing to, is that the world that we know is the world of our experience. And that um, <coughs> the... This, say, the, taking the idea of the, the eterni eternity is now is, uh, is not it's like some sort of high-minded philosophical point. But rather, seeing that um, in this moment, that 
the mind is aware of this particular formation of things in that that um, the because of the habits of attachment we create yesterday today tomorrow and the flow of time but when we look uh, closely at, at experience then um, this uh, the the mind is always aware of the present that's why the um, uh, you know the spiritual teachings focus upon this so much is this is where reality is found is it's always in the present and so that eternity is not so much a like a, a really really long time like many millions or billions of years but rather eternity is is uh, essentially a quality of timelessness where the, the mind lets go of creating time and is uh, attending to that uh, that quality of of the present and that uh, and if this makes sense, as a as a timelessness, the the mind lets go of all of those things that are coming and going and changing, and is aware, that, and that awareness is always here in the present. Does that make sense? It's, it's interesting that in Greek mythology, they had two gods of time. There was Kronos, who's the god of linear time, that's like past, present, future, um, a sort of time as in passing of years and centuries and so on. And then Kairos, who was the, the god of, of the present moment. And then the image that they had of the two, or the way they functioned together, is that uh, Kronos is like a, a, um, a continual thread passing from the, the ancient past to the infinite future. And then Kairos is like a, a, a plane, an infinite plane of the present moment. And where the two meet, where Kairos and Kronos meet, is where we are now, This the, the timeless... Um, uh, present, or the, the, that sense of, of nowness that we all experience, and the slow, slow passing of time. So it's now six sixteen in the evening on uh, <coughs> this uh, particular Saturday it's, uh, at, uh, at Amravati. So that 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 meeting of the two is, uh, as T. S. Eliot uh, put it, uh, uh, to uh, attend to the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. So, which means it takes a lot of work. <laughs> so if we are, what uh, Ajahn Sumedho is saying here, if the, the, if the mind obsesses with past and future and all of those time-bound conditions, this body, this personality, and, and so on, it's, it's necessarily missing the actuality of the present. And a lot of spiritual practice, and meditation in particular, is training the mind to let go of all the beginnings and endings, the past and the futures, and the changing uh, perceptions and conditions, as, as we call them, and to through that letting go, then the, the mind can more fully and completely attend to that timeless present, the, the, uh, that, that point of intersection of the timeless with time, and that then there's a with that uh, that letting go, that non-entanglement of the mind with the past and future and comings and goings, then there's a quality of stillness and spaciousness, so that we use the the word space to talk about uh, physical space, but also mental space of uh, that, uh, say the um, that inner spaciousness that say receives those perceptions coming and going. But there's a quality of stillness and, and openness there. There's a, that, that inner spaciousness, that awareness, is the uh, the kind of the abiding uh, presence. Uh, uh, and so the meditation is uh, a lot to do with. Not so much creating anything, but rather uncluttering that inner spaciousness, letting that the mind not get obsessed with 
success and failure, gain and loss, uh, and uh, the changing perceptions of, of uh, the world, and to attend to this uh, this uh, timeless present. And so then, uh, it is in that uh, attending to the present. Then that's what we t- refer to attending to the deathless, or being aware of the unborn, or the unconditioned, the uncreated. So the, these words are a bit unfamiliar, but it's really essentially based around letting the mind not obsess with with uh, forms and perceptions, thoughts and emotions and ideas, and to uh, to attend to uh, the the present by just uh, being aware. And then in that awareness, it's uh, so when uh, when uh, um, Lumpur says. We're letting them be as they are. Sometimes that can be interpreted as a kind of passivity, like, "Oh, I'm just observing conditions. You know, I'm not going to do anything." Yeah, but your your chair's on fire, Ajahn. You know, I'm just observing. I'm observing. So, yeah, you know, there's flames leaping up. You know, that your robes are catching fire, Ajahn. There's, you're you're in danger. Well, I'm just watching. I'm observing. This is called stupidity. <laughs> so that um, our capacity to act and make choices is also part of the way things are which is a very important principle. So that when we talk about being the watcher, being the observer, um, uh, say, uh, being the one who knows, using those kind of terms, it doesn't mean uh, being passive or numb or non-responsive. It, it's in a way freeing up our, responsi- our responsivity, seeing that this body, this life, this mind is a part of the whole living system. And so the capacity of you to say, oh yeah, I'm on fire, okay, move. <laughs> You're observing the way things are. You're observing the the capacity to act, and you're and then observing the the taking of action, so that um, that uh, quality of of being the the watcher or just um, observing conditions, letting them be as they are, it's it's always important to have that kind of um, uh, that rider on it, that that way of understanding it, because uh, it can easily be seen as oh, I'm supposed to do nothing. I shouldn't say anything. I should just sort of just to de- be with how things are and not and not do anything, and that can be out of uh, a kind of misguided uh, non-attachment. We can be not taking action where everything in in our intuitive wisdom is saying, "Act now, do something." <laughs> they just sit there, do something, so that uh, it can be the the wrong grasping of the idea of letting go or the wrong grasping of non-attachment can lead to a. a uh, more more suffering rather than less. So to continue. In the practice of meditation, then we're beginning to awaken to the way we happen to be within the limitations of this human state. We can assume we have a common bond of humanity, a common ground in many ways, but each one of us is a unique individual entity. Different habit patterns, different cultural identities, different ways of thinking. Different emotional conditions are being experienced now by everyone. And it's beyond the ability of each of us to know everything that is going on in everybody in this room at this moment. But I can know the mental states and emotional conditions that I'm witnessing at this time. And as I allow the mental state to be conscious, rather than simply reacting to it or trying to control or ignore it, I begin to notice that I can't sustain that state. I begin to see that it changes very quickly and that if I don't feel it, with, uh, sorry, if I don't feed it with thinking and judging, it ceases. So if I stop thinking and just observe, just notice, just trust in my ability to be fully attentive, awake and conscious, then it is 
like this. Now, I've referred many times to my use of the sound of silence, quote-unquote, a practice that I've explored over the years. I found it a very helpful way of reflecting on experience. When I let go of everything and I'm just in a state of pure presence, pure being, pure awareness, I recognize this kind of vibratory background sound. Or is it a vibration? In terms of perception, it seems like a sound. That's how I perceive it in terms of labeling it or explaining it. And yet, unlike ordinary sound, it has a continuity, a vibratory quality to it which sustains itself and is the background to all other sounds. Right now, I can be fully present within this, quote, sound of silence, unquote, and still be talking and looking at you because it's like an embracing background. It has this sense of infinity, boundlessness, like space or consciousness. In other words, I'm not caught in the manipulation of my thoughts and emotions, reacting and playing with the conditions that arise in consciousness, but acknowledging and recognizing pure subjectivity. In terms of this moment, then, it is absolute subjectivity, yet non-personal. If I start claiming it in terms of it is mine, I'm creating a person that owns it. If I don't do that, however, if I refuse to think, create, or make anything out of it, then it is what it is. Kaboom. <laughs> so this um, practice of listening to the inner sound, the nada sound, or the sound of silence, is something that uh, uh, Lumpur Sumato has been teaching since the early 80s, um, back in the, uh, uh, the, the, um, the time when the community was established at, at Chithurst before Amrath. And so it's a practice that many of us have, have been using for a, a long time. So I've, uh, I tend to use the sound of silence as a concentration object or a meditation object much more than the mindfulness of breathing myself. And so I've developed it a lot so I can listen to it now as I'm talking to you, just as Paul Sumato could listen to it while he was talking to the people in Leicester, uh, all those uh, years ago, and um, that uh, uh, say that inner listening uh, is, I find, is an extremely uh, uh, helpful, say, um, way of sustaining that quality of of non entanglement. Because say there, with that sound in the background, then there's a recognition of, oh yes, well this is just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. This is a a mental event. This is the evening reading on a Saturday at Amravati, but it's also seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And it's formed into this particular pattern, and I'm reading from this particular book, and I'm saying these particular words, but it is like this. There's a, a quality of suchness or, or isness that is, um, uh, say, able to be uh, realized or recognized, even as the words are being chosen or the particular perceptions are, are, are forming, there's a recognition of the the quality of, of suchness. So that uh, another way of, uh, of uh, say, talking about ultimate reality, uh, one of the qualities that uh, that we can use is, uh, in Pali, is tatata, which literally means suchness or thusness. And so that when the mind is awake to that uh, that fundamental reality, to, to nibbana, to the, the asankata dhamma, the unconditioned dhamma, uh, whatever words we want to use, then in a sense of emotional tone or the or the the the, the felt uh, presence of that quality then suchness or thusness isness is a, a word that is 
used to, to describe that. So tatata, like the word the Buddha used to, to refer to himself was, was tatagata, one thus gone or thus come. So tata means such or thus. So uh, tatata means way of, uh, of uh, say, referring to that felt sense of the, the present when the mind is disengaging from the individual objects. So that um, it's a, a uh, say, like if you use the example of the sea, like normally our attention, like looking at everybody here, so that you can look, oh, you know, this is Tim, that's Martin, that's Tanya Nidaro, that's Anagarika uh, Peiching, uh, Ajahn Sundra, Sister Tanavijaya. The, these are, are the particular uh, names of people, but uh, to, to pick up the quality of suchness, it's rather like as if rather than people, we're looking at waves on the sea. So rather than, you know, uh, giving the, the waves different names, it's just the sea. It's just, well, there's, it's just this. The, the, uh, these humans, these human forms, are just like waves on the ocean. And so that we can focus on individual waves and their shapes and their movements, or we can just say, the sea, this is the ocean, this is the, the quality of, of the ocean. And so that uh, that, uh, that quality of, of suchness or, or um, pure presence, like uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedha uses it, or as he... Uh, uh, he frequently says, it's like this. It, uh, this is the way it is. It's evoking that quality uh, of suchness, which is like a, a unifying sense of the uh, of, uh, letting go of the, the individual qualities of, of experience or the particular shape of a moment and saying, it's this way. So I, I don't know how many gazillion times in, uh, in uh, Ajahn Sumedho's Dhamma talks he said, this is the way it is, or it's like this. But... Uh, that's what he's referring to, is that uh, the, the quality of uh, letting go of the, the individual um, the c- concern or interest or fascination with the particular qualities of any perception, any form, any emotion, any thought, any condition, and uh, in a sense feeling or appreciating, apprehending the presence of the whole, the, the, uh, the whole uh, moment, the, the, the quality of that, that timeless present reality, so that... Um, then <coughs> uh, when he says it's like this, he's not um, pointing at a particular detail, but rather that quality of, of suchness. Does that make sense? Okay. Noticing the sound of silence, I simultaneously notice that other sounds arise and cease within it. If I listen to the sound of a stream or a waterfall, for example, I can actually recognize the sound of silence behind it. And as I tune into the sound of silence and begin to rest in it more, I notice that the sound of the stream or the waterfall is enhanced. Rather than cancelling out or obliterating all other sounds, the sound of silence seems to enhance and support them. I can hear it in the background to music and to noisy machinery, like a chainsaw or a lawnmower. That does take a bit of skill. You've got to work at chainsaws. Now, wanting to, claim, uh, wanting to claim that as some kind of attainment comes back to the sense of me being somebody who has something. But there's no need for claiming. The point is to trust in this ability we, ha- we all have of attention to the present moment. Eternity is now. The Buddha's teaching is the teaching of awakenedness. The word Buddha actually means awakened. And in the Thai forest tradition, they have this mantra, Buddho, which is the mantric form of Buddha. 
The forest Ajahn, Ajahn Mun, for instance, used to call it the one who knows. But it isn't like a person that knows something. It is just a knowing, merely the reality of knowing. Uh, so I- interestingly enough, so the, the Thai word, the Thai phrase that is used is Puru. So Pu is from the Purisa, meaning a person. Ru is to know. So Puru, uh, the one who knows, is a very frequent term used by, by Lumpur Cha as well, the, referring to that quality of awareness, uh, awakened awareness, and uh, the, that, the Buddha mind, or that, that Buddha knowing. Uh, Ajahn Janasara, who does a, a lot of teaching in Thai language and is quite a, a word person, he, um, I just found out recently, so, uh, someone was talking about it, he said, well, actually Ajahn Janasara, he uses uh, tat rule, the, the, uh, the element of knowing. So the, the da, uh, tat comes from datu, like the uh, earth, water, fire, and wind are the four great elements. And so the, uh, amongst the other elements, you have the element of space or the element of consciousness. And so uh, Ajahn Janasara has started to use the term the element of, of, of knowing as a way of talking about it rather than the person, you know, the person who knows because of the wanting to say indicate that, it, uh, that it's not a, a personal thing, it's not a, a, a uh, like a little kind of entity, you know, little kind of homunculus sitting in your head that's doing the knowing, the one who knows, but rather it's a quality of knowing, a quality uh, of awareness. So then, speaking a little bit more about the the sound of silence. So sometimes this can get uh, is, gets talked about in various different ways. And some um, some religious traditions uh, they uh, say in the the Sikh tradition from India they call it the uh, the yoga of inner light and sound. Um, in the Chinese tradition, uh, in the Shurangama uh, Sutra, um, it's uh, spoken of as the uh, returning the the uh, Returning the hearing, or returning the hearing to listen to the the, uh, the inner nature or the self nature, um, and uh, say in uh, other religious traditions they have different ways of talking about it, and some of them, uh, I mean, in the scientific tradition, you know, they would probably talk about it as the as an effect of the the, uh, the electrical current in your nervous system, uh, you know, having its impact on your eardrums and your your hearing centers. So it's talked about in various different ways, and, um, <clears throat> and or different value is ascribed to it. So it can be very exalted, like this is the the voice of Brahma. This is the the song of the universe. Uh, it can be used very kind of high-minded spiritual language, or it can be like, well, it's just the buzzing of your the the little hairs, a little cilia in your your ear, the electrical background firing of your your auditory nerve. That's all. It's no big thing. But uh, Lumpur's Meda would always point out that it's don't you don't have to come up with some sort of special theory about what it is or some perfect idea, but just to put put it to use. Like uh, we don't have to have a a, um, a some kind of cosmic theory about the breath or the significance of the breath. It just you can use your breath as a meditation object. You don't have to have a, a lot of thinking around it. So similarly with the the uh, the sound of silence and. Uh, we don't have to make a big story about it or have some kind of theory about it. it's the, the song of the universe or whether it's just the buzzing of your ears or it's just the incipient tinnitus. But, uh, I mean, I, I've taught this a lot in many different retreats and, and um, meditation days. And One fellow in America said, I've spent $20,000 going to doctors trying to get rid of this. And now you tell me I can make it work for me. I want my money back. You know? <laughs> he, was, he was quite happy. <laughs> 
he was a, he was a, a, a kind of co- complaining with a smile on his face. But um, so I, re- I recommend not trying to get too theoretical about it. But if you can hear it or discern it, either as a uh, as an inner sound or as a vibration in the in the body, as a subtle presence, then it's something that can be used in an, in an ongoing way. Um, so I, there's a little book called Inner Listening that uh, I wrote uh, about it because people keep asking questions about it as a meditation method. So I would, uh, even though it sounds like shameless self-promotion, if you want to find out more about listening to the Nada sound, the inner listening, then there's a book about it available in the lobby. <laughs> it's free. It's all free. But anyway, um, any particular questions, reflections, thoughts so far? Yes. Well, because um, in some respects space has no form, it can't be owned, um, it, it, it uh, is, can't be said to be any, any, uh, any it's not fixed anywhere. Um, <coughs> the, um, uh, the quality of space as receiving anything and everything into it without discrimination. Uh, things in a way can't really overlap space even what we call uh, physical form in the, if you look inside a, an atom or a, or a uh, inside, even in, inside a uh, neutrons and protons and within an atom that even subatomic particles are mostly space so that uh, the, the, uh, the quality of space say is, uh, is unobstructed by the arriving and departing of different forms in, in, in so-called objects. So that uh, say any analogy, as I said, is, is partially accurate, but that quality of... Um, there's some of the qualities of, of space which are say, um, they line up with, they can say they, they represent or align the different qualities respect to the, the unborn, the unconditioned. Space, uh, again, it, it's only partially, we can say space doesn't have a beginning or an end, it's not bound by time. According to Einsteinian physics, of course it does, because the space began at the Big Bang. <laughs> but then other people say, well, the Big Bang was actually a big bounce. And there, was a, there was another universe before that that then collapsed, and just it bounced, and a new one began. So that the space does continue, but in little minor details. But uh, but with all of these these things, it's good to explore for yourself you know, to say, okay, well, the Ajahn just said space is a good analogy for the unborn, the unconditional. How is that? How, how, how is that? And then to to use the meditation to pick that up, and uh, like it was actually this uh, Tibetan Lama, uh, Sogni Rinpoche, who made that point. He said space is the the best example um, for uh, uh, say describing awareness, but it's also the worst because it's not aware. <laughs> Space is not conscious. And I thought, oh, that's really that's really interesting. I never thought of it that way. And then having heard him say that, then that was a very uh, uh, rich source of contemplation. I thought, oh, so that it's, uh, it's both a good example and a bad example. So similarly, 
the inner sounds, the, the listening to the nada sounds, um, I make a point in, in that little booklet <laughs> of saying how it's a, a good symbol on the material, on, it's, a, it's a sense object, but many of the qualities of the inner sounds uh, match up with the qualities of the, the Dhamma, the, un, the unborn, unconditioned, that it's, it doesn't seem to have a beginning and an end. It's just it's it's a the, as a quality of presence. It's, it's a uh, it's something that uh, is non-personal. It doesn't respond to personal will. You can't make it be a particular way. You can't um, uh, say make it stronger or weaker or louder or quieter. Uh, you can pay attention to it or not pay attention to it, but it it is what it is. It's it's not under personal control, um, and uh, <coughs> the. Um, uh, so in, there's a, a number of the qualities that it has. It's a sense object, but when you look at sanditiko, uh, apparent here and now, yes, timeless. Well, it doesn't seem to begin and end, and it's always here. Okay, uh, encouraging investigation. The more you pay attention to it, the brighter the mind gets, and the easier it is to pay attention to it. So that, uh, but again, like uh, um, Ajahn is saying here, that uh, one of the things with respect to it is to say that you can then. Read a lot into. Oh, I can hear the sound of silence. That must mean I'm, you know, I've, I've really attained something. So that, or like, oh, I, I, I'm noticing space everywhere. I must have realized the unborn, the unconditioned. It's like, well, those are trains of. That's a train of thought. So the mind is making assumptions. So I've actually seen uh, when I was in the states, there was a, a work, a weekend workshop that cost five thousand dollars, led by a, uh, a a well-known popular spiritual teacher. <laughs> $5,000 for a weekend, and it had all this kind of full-page adverts in these spiritual magazines, and it was promising this kind of amazing initiation and this kind of life-transforming um, <coughs> practice will be, will be taught and your life will be changed forever. And then I found out that what he was teaching was listening to the sound of silence. 5000 bucks for a weekend. And that was, it was um, somebody who uh, so showed me this advert when I was doing a... A, a kind of a, a meditation day on the same theme. Said, "You're really cheap, Ajahn. <laughs> you could be charging five thousand dollars, or at least at least the uh, fifteen hundred for a day." You know? uh, and so that, um, and then ramping it up as this is you know this is going to change your life. This is uh, the sound of the universe. Uh, this is going to um, bring you you know, literally literally promising enlightenment. You know, and there. So that sometimes people come away from those things and say, well, I can hear this inner sound. Does that mean I'm enlightened? Yeah. And they've been told that they are, if they can hear it. So I just say, well, actually, it's just a sound you hear in your ear. <laughs> and, uh, or there's, uh, because the word sota um, is the, uh, the word for ear, sotapana means, a, so, so people say, does it, it's not, maybe it's not stream entering, maybe it's entering the ear. Because the word for stream is sota, and the word for ear is sota, and wow! Is it, if I can hear the inner sound, that means I'm I'm actually a sota part. The sound is entering my ear, so I'm a I'm a, I'm a stream entry. It's a, they've 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 been misrepresenting this all these years. It wasn't entering the stream; it was entering the ear. Wow! And then the Buddha's disciples are called savakas, the sound hearers. Yes, you know. And it, I'm, really, I'm not kidding. I mean, it's that these there are those who have come up with these streams of logic. And then they assume that because they can hear this the sound, then they're they are they're thereby a stream enterer. 
And uh, it was very interesting. I was, I was having a conversation with Ajahn Pasana about this. And I said, you know, because we were doing this book about Nibbana, and, uh, and he had about three or four chapters all about stream entry. And I said, you know, that some people think of, of like the, the uh, inner, inner listening and listening to the Nada sound. They, they kind of make the mistake of, of uh, I think that the sota of the ear is the same as the sota of the stream. You know, do you think we should say something about that? No. <laughs> so don't give people ideas. You know. so it was an interesting discussion, but uh, he was. Uh, I said, "Well, you know, do you think there's any validity to that?" He said, "No, absolutely not." And uh, it might, so it's like an English word like minute, for meaning small, and minute meaning sixty seconds. They're spelled exactly the same, but they have totally different meanings. So the word "sota" s o t a for stream and "sota" for for the ear. They're spelled the same, but they have totally different meanings. So anyway, we, we decided not to even make any mention of that in the in the island, but just leave that, uh, not to give people ideas or to um, create the cause for projection and imagination unnecessarily. But um, the uh, so my the encouragement that uh, that Lumpur Samedo has, and uh, I also uh, following in his footsteps would say that if it, if you can use it, if you can hear it, it's a very helpful. A reference point, but don't make a big thing out of it. Don't, don't assume that you've uh, you've a stream enter or you're fully enlightened or anything other than it's a sound that you can hear that is uh, a useful presence. Yeah, so it's it's good to uh, to sort of uh, uh, unplug that. But if that if that had been a view that was Murmuring around in the back of the mind, then I would, then I would say unplug that. Yes. I'm 
Yes. <laughs> it's also interesting that uh, John Cage, who I mentioned the other day, that um, uh, that uh, his phrase, the nothing which supports everything, uh, his most famous piece of music is called 4 minutes 33 seconds. And it's uh, a piece that's played where the, the pianist sits down and holds their fingers above the, key of the keys of the piano and doesn't touch them. And it's exactly 4 minutes and 33 seconds long. So... Uh, uh, and the, according to his own account, uh, it was from going into an anechoic chamber in MIT. He was taken into this this completely soundproof room, and then hearing this sound really, really loudly, that uh, and he was really struck. Oh, there's no such thing as silence, really. And so that then the reason why it's four uh, four minutes thirty three seconds is that's two hundred and seventy three seconds, and minus two seven three is absolute zero. So that's the, thus have I heard. That's, that's why he chose that exact amount of time. And so that became his most, uh, most famous piece of, of, uh, of music. Um, but anyway, to carry on with a little embellished silence for the next 10 minutes or so. It's an interesting time now in terms of this English word consciousness because it's being examined most thoroughly. The tendency, however, is to regard consciousness as some kind of brain function and to define it as thinking, quote-unquote. Its opposite being unconsciousness. Unconsciousness is often used to mean not thinking or not being awake. In that case, unconsciousness means that consciousness no longer exists for us and is not operating in this particular form. To me, however, instead of looking at consciousness in such a limited way as some kind of mental function of the brain, it's more that this, quote-unquote, is the experience of consciousness. That consciousness is the natural state of being, and that these particular forms are ways of experiencing it. We have this subject-object experience. So in terms of right now, the subject is here, and you are the object. You are in consciousness, but you are not in my brain. It isn't something that I can claim as a kind of creation of my own on a personal level. It is simply like this. I can see your face, but I can't see my own face. You can see my eyes, but I can't see my own eyes. I can see your eyes, but you can't see your own eyes. You don't need to see your own eyes, of course, because seeing is the point, and knowing things as they are is the point, rather than trying to find out 
Who is it that's knowing? That's another question. What is it that knows? Who is it that knows? What is behind all this? We want to find out. Is it God? Is it the ultimate truth? We want a name for it in some way because the level of conditioning that we have wants to define things, wants to hold things in forms, in perceptions. If we don't have those forms and perceptions, then we tend to dismiss, ignore, reject, or even feel frightened by this experience of the unborn. In order to appreciate the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, we of course have to awaken to it. The point is, we might know we're suffering because we don't get what we want, so we see the suffering through personal interpretation. We blame it on others or the world, or we get angry with God for creating us and making us suffer like this. Or we just blame ourselves, it's my fault I'm suffering. When we awaken to suffering, however, we don't interpret it in these ways. We merely see that it is the way it is. We begin to accept and allow things we had previously resisted, rejected and run away from. And once we begin to appreciate this, we can actually trust awakened awareness, an awakened intuitive sense of the present, as something to develop and cultivate in life. We can be aware that our own body at this moment is like this, quote-unquote. Sitting is like this. Breathing is like this. Feeling hot or cold is like this. We can be aware of our mental state, whatever it is, because all things are embraced within this vast open acceptance, an awakened acceptance of this moment. Eternity is now, quote-unquote, does not, however, mean that any of these conditions is eternal. Each one arises and ceases, and you quickly notice that, but if you trust the awakened state and cultivate it, you'll see that 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 lasts beyond the length of the condition that you're experiencing. This is why I advise and encourage you to trust it. As far as meditation is concerned, people tend to see themselves in terms of either attaining or not attaining. One thing I commonly hear is, I've been practicing for years and I don't think I've got anywhere. don't think I've attained anything. In that case, the basic delusion has never been really penetrated. That, quote, I've not achieved anything yet. Unquote, is a created thought in the present. By becoming aware that that is a created thought, however, one no longer believes such a statement or any thoughts about oneself being the reality. One begins to sense the infinite instead, the unborn, the unconditioned, the deathless, in which one no longer limits oneself or binds oneself to the death-bound conditioning that one has. One begins to realize that liberation is through letting go, through allowing life to flow, through openness and attention. <clears throat> so there's a, 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 um, a passage from the Sutra of Hui Neng, which uh, Alan Watts quoted, sort of put into his own words in one of his books, uh, about this principle of eternity. And so it's the, the verse of, uh, the words of Hui Neng, who was the sixth, patriarch of the um, Chan tradition in China and uh, uh, the this so this uh, so Alan Watts's version of we name so it's kind of in, in Alan Watts's words and it says um, in this moment there is no thing that comes to be in this moment there is no thing that ceases to be thus in this moment there is no birth and death to be brought to an end Therefore, this moment 
is the absolute peace. And even though it's just this moment, there is no limit to this moment. And herein is eternal delight. This is a very uh, uh, beautiful uh, way of expressing things. So that and when it says, in this moment there is no thing that comes to be, it's saying that there is no abs- sort of absolute positive, you know, permanent substantial thing that wasn't and now is uh, is existing. It uh, it seems as though things come to be, uh, but the it's the the mind ascribing thingness or solidity to that. Uh, in actuality, there's just a continuous flow of uh, of uh, modulating perceptions and uh, and feelings, and so we say thing as in the evening reading. <laughs> it begins and it ends, but. Uh, it's that that quality of thickness or solidity is, is something that the mind gives to it. So when it says, "In this moment, there is no thing that comes to be," it's like in the in the present, there is just this. Like as Ajahn Sumedha is saying over and over again, it's this way. It's like this, and so that that quality of thickness or solidity, or that real thing that began and it's existing now and it'll end in the future, that that uh, solidity is not given to it, and it's just in this moment. There's this. So the the attention is going on that quality of, of suchness or, or isness. And <clears throat> as he says, uh, therefore this moment is the absolute peace because the, the, the attention is not tied up with all those beginnings and, ending, and be, beginnings and endings that are apparent, but is simply attending to that, that quality of, of the present, is awake to that. And he says, even though it's just this moment, there's no limit to this moment. So we think of time as being an infinite past and then the future uh, 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 ahead also in an infinite possibility. And this present moment is, is this kind of little insignificant sliver that's just sort of nothing very much. But the past is huge. and The future is, 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 is huge as well. But this moment, eh, nothing special. But it's saying, well, actually, <laughs> actually, if the vision is, uh, if the perception is changed rather than the present being a uh, an insignificant sort of sliver, like if you instead of looking at Kairos, the plane of Kairos from the side, where it's just this little wee line, if you kind of change the vision, then it's an infinite plane. That the the present, the moment, the now is is an infinite quality, and there's no there's no limit to it. And again, that that's a um, uh, it's a beautiful way of speaking or a poetic way of speaking, but it's also pointing to our own uh, experience, and so that. That um, that quality of nowness, or or um, the 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 mind are opening to and awakening to that uh, that quality of the present is a large part of meditation. So letting go of time, or the mind not creating past and future, but rather a sense of opening to the present moment by moment, and that uh, and so that that simple. Recognition that uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedha is encouraging. Like, it's this way. It's like this. Um, again, he would say that over and over again. But that's also in terms of meditation when the mind is they. Oh, I like this. You know, well, it's like this. Oh, that's, this is awful. It's like this. Whatever the mind uh, chooses, it's inside. It's outside. It's beautiful. It's ugly. I like it. I don't like it. Uh, I'm interested in it. I'm bored with it. To keep uh, reflecting. Well, it's like this. It's like this. It's like this. Then that has a way of letting the attention, say, not get entangled in the content, but look at the, the whole field of the present. So letting go of the individual waves and, noti- and noticing 
uh, really attending and receiving the presence of the whole ocean. <laughs> so we are just in respect to that because yes, size uh, is uh, is subjective. So Lumpur Cha would pick up something and say, "Is this big or small?" I'd say, "Well, uh, compared to the planet, it's small. But if you're an ant, it's really big." So is it big or small? Yeah, Ajahn Sundari, you were going to say something. Yeah. Ah, I, I could see what he was pointing at. That uh, in terms of comparing the the space, say that the 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 air of this room, um, where the humans are not, to the space of the mind that is uh, the awareness that is uh, is knowing things. That yeah, that you can say the, the as far as I, I can tell. The, the air in this room or the the, uh, the space in this room isn't conscious. It might be, but it's not apparent if it is. Um, and that, um, the, but whereas the mind, that the, what we call the space of the mind or the the space of awareness, then the quality of, of knowing is 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 like the most dominant characteristic of it. So I could see in terms of of uh, what the point he was making that was that was a, a helpful perspective. It's also we to say. One of the, it's speaking about insurance. One of the uh, uh, memorable uh, lessons that we had in, the, and I was a psychology student. Uh, the psychology of language. One of the most uh, influential uh, uh, writers and experimenters in the psychology of language was a man called Benjamin Worf, W H O R F, and uh, he got into the psychology of language because he was an insurance inspector, insurance adjuster. And what happened was that he was, uh, there was an explosion at a petrol station. And uh, he was sent out from the insurance company to go and do a review of how this explosion had happened. And um, so he was talking to the people who worked at the petrol station. Said, well, how did this, this explosion happen? The whole place got, got blown up. And so he's talking to this particular worker. It's amazing that the worker had survived because he said, well, we were cleaning out this old tank and we'd opened it up. And... Um, and I, 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 you know, it was, there was nothing in it. There was no petrol. And there, was no, there was no gasoline in it. So it was empty. So um, I was smoking a cigarette. So I just, I just <laughs> flicked my you know, cigarette into the empty tank. And he thought, aha. That's very interesting because he thought empty because it had no liquid in it. But it was actually filled with fumes. It was filled with, with uh, fumes of gasoline that was still... Uh, the residue was was still there, so kaboom, the whole thing blew up. Well, that's interesting. He called it empty, and that uh, because of calling it empty, then he made this dreadful mistake. Amazing, he survived. Probably lost his eyebrows. But, uh, <laughs> amazing that he survived. But then that set ben- Benjamin Wharf off the. Uh, he sort of resigned from the insurance company and got into psychology and, and language. Because 
how significant it is how we name things and how the, what a difference the words make. And so that uh, we can say this room is empty, but it's filled with uh, air, with, with uh, oxygen, carbon dioxide. Most of the gas in here is nitrogen, which uh, we breathe in and breathe out. It doesn't do anything for our, our bodies. The plants, some of them really like the nitrogen. It's uh, important to the, the plants. Also, this room is filled with radio waves. If we had radios here, we could turn on the radios. We get pick up different radio stations. Um, you could probably get Wi-Fi here. <laughs> Hook into the uh, Amaravati Wi-Fi system. Um, speaking of neutrinos, so uh, according to um, uh, the one popular science book I read recently, um, the uh, we we all of us have. 60 billion neutrinos passing through every square centimeter of the body every second. As the, the Earth is being hit by this. They don't even slow down for the planet. They're just going to go straight through. So these little tiny subatomic particles that have no mass. So right now, you've got 60 billion neutrinos passing through every square centimeter of your body per second. You can't even feel it. So space has got a lot of stuff happening in it. And so that any any way of talking about material sort of space in terms of material form, you know, there's there's no such thing as a as a perfect vacuum because even without any particles in it, even if you could remove all the particles and keep all of the um, subatomic particles and radiation out of it as well, you'd still have gravity happening there. So what is empty space? You know, those those things are always partial. <laughs> well, maybe those neutrinos are conscious, you know. They, but uh, maybe, maybe gravity is a con an effect of consciousness. Well, some people would say so. Um, the, uh, the the standard physics. Model would not say so, <laughs> but our impressions of them, you know, that they, uh, and the way that the mind experiences them is through the agency of the human mind, the human perceptions. So, but not to get too far out, <laughs> you know, that says to say space is just a a, um, uh, a kind of makeshift term. It's a good enough way of referring to it. So, like, you know, this is the chair, and this is the space around the chair. So, it's just a a convenient. Uh, uh, convenient way of describing things. So we say, you know, the uh, <coughs> and the, the point of using those kind of terms, uh, noticing space and such like, is so that the 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 mind can see where it gets c caught up and entangled, and then can can let go. Just like when <coughs> if he's Lumpur is saying, it's like this. We say, well, it's like what? You know, <laughs> g give me give me more detail. You know, I need I need I need more on that. You know, it's like no, no, no. The whole point is just to help let go, not, not to kind of, not to grasp. Uh, and but that uh, it, to use that reflection in an ongoing way is really helpful. And uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was famously uh, opposed to a, a superstition and and was absolutely uh, vehement about not encouraging people to wear amulets and have sort of magical tattoos and things, uh, and he said there is actually one amulet that will be useful to you. That will really protect you. People go, oh, yeah. I said, yes, there's one amulet that will that will really always benefit you, and it's and what it has written on it is Ben Yang Ni Eng, which means this is the way it is. 
so that where, if you wear that amulet, if you keep, when any, when anything happens that you like, you don't like, you're comfortable, uncomfortable. If you look at the amulet, it'll remind you, this is the way it is. So that will really help you. So on that note, I think we can finish for this evening.